Okay, if you will turn in your copy of the scriptures to Ephesians 4. We've been talking about the church. What does the church do? Uh, The church gathers. uh, And the church scatters. And what does it do when it scatters? What's the best thing we can do for our fellow members when we're away from each other? And we said to grow up into Jesus Christ. Uh, In short, that means to change. Uh, We should expect to be transformed from our old way of being human to someone in line with Christ, our new head, truly bearing the image of God. And so the metaphor for change that Paul employs is that of dressing and undressing, which is not implying that we're just supposed to change externally, but the point of the metaphor is the deliberateness of our change. We are to deliberately rethink our behavior and our behavior from the inside out. What is motivating us? How we think. We're to be renewed in the spirit of our minds. And so Paul is encouraging the church toward transformation that is mainly internal, although, of course, it will show up on the outside, too. And so in our paragraphs this morning, Paul provides specifics for this putting off and the putting on. He'll tell us what to put off, and what to put on, and he'll say a few words about why. And so, again, I ask you, church, what can we do for each other while we're away from each other, which is where we are most of the time? And the answer is grow up into Christ to deliberately put off the old humanity and put on the new humanity that has Christ as its head, And what specifically does that look like? And I'm just going to read again what we read uh, together in verse 25 of chapter 4. Therefore, what does that look like to put off and put on, to change? Having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. For we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. 
So we're just going to run through that. Verse 25, don't lie, but tell the truth. Because we, as the body of Christ, are interrelated. And a lie from one, whether that be a lying tongue or a lying life, living a double life, resetting your browsing history, indulging in white lies, skimming from the top, a lie reverberates through the community and is corrosive for all. Verses 26 and 27, we're told to not allow our anger to cross the line into sinful anger, but put on self-control over your emotions. Don't allow your anger, which might be fine, but don't allow it to extend beyond sunset. Because uncontrolled and unresolved anger is a great instrument for the devil. And hearing this reference to the devil in the context of Ephesians, we can infer that uncontrolled and unresolved anger is a major unity-busting weapon of the devil. Bust up marriages, bust up churches. Verse 28, don't steal, don't be lazy, don't take shortcuts. Put off all of that, but put on diligence. Work hard. Wouldn't you agree that working hard has always been, back to Paul's day and before, has always been countercultural? Uh, we are in an era, maybe all the eras have been, in an era of deep-seated laziness. When I hear about the problem of workaholism, I think that's not our problem. Our problem is the opposite of laziness. And I wonder, kind of a by the way, if all of our identity questioning and sexual weirdness in our society comes about because people are fundamentally bored and have too much time on their hands. And so Paul says, work hard, not so you can live big, but so that you'll have something to share with the needy. Uh, I don't know if you watched that Fred Sanders sermon I sent out the other day, but where he quotes from a famous John Wesley sermon that has these lines, earn all you can, give all, uh, wait, hold on, earn all you can, save all you can, give all, give all you can. Um, anyway, so, uh, and what does it mean? Who are the needy people? Well, the first needy people we take care of is our own family. Those are needy. 1 Timothy 5, verse 8 says, But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than someone who's not a believer. But even beyond our household, you'll find plenty of others with needs. And so you'll need resources to supply those needs. And those resources come from hard work. Again, not so you can live big, but so that you can share with those who are in need. Although it's true, you don't need much before you can start to give. Yes? I read somewhere about the experience of the old Methodist missionary, E. Stanley Jones. 
As he was preaching in a small town, I'm going to quote here. This is from E. Stanley Jones. He said, at the schoolhouse, I was invited to stay with a man and his wife. And when I arrived, I saw that there was one, one bed. The husband said, you take the far side. Then he got in, and then his wife. In the morning, we reversed the process. I turned my face to the wall as they, as they put on their clothes, and they stepped out while I dressed. That was real hospitality, he said. I have slept in palaces, but the hospitality of that one bed house is the most memorable and the most appreciated. Verse 29, Paul returns to our speech, which that must be a problem because he goes back to it. He says, put all off talk that disturbs or breaks down relationships that harms reputations, but rather think about how to be constructive with your speech. So far in this passage, the pattern is easily discerned. You put off and then you put on. Well, verse 30, you'll see, is a break in that pattern. And it starts with and, so it's connected with the previous verses. So Paul says, if we lie, if we lie in our words or in our life, if we allow anger to kind of settle down on us, if we are selfish or lazy in our work, if we are practicing noxious, harmful speech, no matter how subtle that is, we thereby grieve the Holy Spirit of God. Verse 30. I hope when you hear grieve, you don't imagine the Holy Spirit pouting with his lower lip out in the corner. Rather, by mentioning grieving the Holy Spirit, Paul is reminding us that the Holy Spirit is working. Here, get this, very important. The Holy Spirit is working closely with our inner life. Yes, the salvation of new creation in Jesus Christ is very personal from start to finish. And brought about, that salvation is brought about by no one less majestic than the Holy Spirit of God. It's a kind of a big title, Paul laid, the Holy Spirit of God. And you think about what even just from Ephesians, what we've read, or if you've read Ephesians, God the Father plans our salvation before the world is founded. Long ago, he thought through and assigned each one of us particular work. God the Son comes and preaches peace among the body of Christ. The Spirit strengthens Christians in their inner man with faith. The victorious Christ gives gifts so that his church can grow up into who he's made them to be. And so all that to say... All along the way of our salvation, it's God himself is working on this project, this human project that has as its core unity among believers. And Paul says, by your lying or stealing or your cheating or your backbiting, don't frustrate the Holy Spirit of God as he works on you and the church and underneath of that, the point is your life, brothers and sisters, your life and this church is not just or mainly your project, but whose? 
God's Paul adds in that verse 30, he says that we're sealed by the Spirit. Did you see that there in verse 30? By whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. So what identifies people as being in Christ? Think about that question. What what is the identifier of people who are in Christ that they're destined for the world to come? And Paul says it's the Spirit himself is the marker, the badge, the the label that designates us as in line for redemption. I can expand that statement. The Spirit who is working in us to put off and put on certain habits of mind is himself the designation that we are on our way to being redeemed. What does it look like to be on the way to being redeemed? It means that the Spirit himself is working in us to put off and put on. And so the thought here is, why would we, for instance, by our laziness or by our selfishness or by our little dribbles of the gossip, act as if the Spirit hasn't marked us for redemption, that we weren't in line for redemption. Why would we, by our habits of thought, why would we deny what the Spirit is building? Paul says, so act like what is true. You were sealed with the Spirit. The Spirit is the one who is teaching you to put off laziness, the dishonesty, corrupting speech. So act as if you were being prepared for this day of redemption. Verse 31, Paul returns to the general topic of anger. So again, so he's already talked about speech twice, and now he comes back to anger again. What's the lesson there? What's the takeaway? We must have problems with speech and anger, yeah? If we are aligned with what the Spirit is doing as he takes us into the day of redemption will put off bitterness, which is holding on to past offenses. We'll put off wrath and anger, which is wrath is the emotional outburst and anger being the kind of the settled fury that comes out in coldness or in distance, also known as the silent treatment. I won't ask how many of you spouses have given your spouse the silent treatment will put off the out-of-control shouting of clamor. We'll distance ourselves from slander, talking poorly about others or otherwise diminishing people in others' eyes, especially when they're not around. And finally, at the very end of verse 31, Paul throws in malice. Put that, put that off. Malice is kind of a catch-all for any sour, harmful, dehumanizing mindset or attitude or stance or behavior towards someone. Coldness, distance, rudeness, incivility, put that off. Rather, verse 32, put on kindness. What is kindness? 
actively doing good to people no matter what. Thinking through and then following through on how to make life more bearable for someone. Even someone who doesn't like you. Adding goodness or flavor or efficiency to somebody's life. Taking time with people. Good manners. Being friendly. Kindness is the opposite of coolness or in, in, indifference or neglect. This is the trait that Peter has in mind when he writes his letter, when he tells husbands to live with, live with their wives according to knowledge. Be kind, be interested, be engaged. And what's the next word in verse 32? Tender-hearted. The other day, Liesel was looking for a movie to watch, and so I recommended Old Yeller. Uh, and a couple hours later, she comes up to me, and tears are streaming, and she says, why did you have me watch that? Then she told me a couple of nights ago, as I mentioned during Sunday school, she cried while reading the book, The Yearling, and the story about a little fawn. But Paul doesn't here doesn't mean tender-hearted about animals, although maybe you should, I don't know. He means tender-hearted about who? People. And especially difficult people. Choosing to make allowances for people because you've thought through their situation. You sympathize with people in their sinfulness, in their finiteness, in their churlishness. You know what churlish means? Kind of like, what's it, what does churlish mean? Kind of rudeness? Yeah? Churlish, it's a good word. Kind of sounds like what it is. You sympathize with people as they go through the various seasons of their life. And you're not a self-pityer or a cynic or a scold or given to snark, but rather you're, you are generous in your evaluations of people. That's what tenderheartedness uh, tender is. When someone does something rude to you, your immediate thought is not, okay, I'm writing her off or I'm done with her, but you think, okay, yeah, mama said there'd be days like this. And finally, forgiving one another, Paul says. Forgiving is an action, but it's also a general attitude toward people who wrong you, ranging from the attitude or the stance of you are overlooking a multitude of sins, that's from 1 Peter, to being ready to forgive someone, to actually extending forgiveness when someone admits wrong. And here's another break we find in our putting off and putting on pattern, and it's the same kind of thing as before. We're given the rationale for changing our habits of thought, for forgiving. And so let's ask the question, why would you intentionally choose forgiveness? 
Or perhaps the better question is, how could you? Where do you find the resources to genuinely forgive people who have annoyed you? Or maybe who have annoyed you for a long time? Or who have dismissed you? Or who have ignored you when your life was hard? Or who have mismanaged you and held you back? Or who have broken a major trust? Or who have hurt your children? That's always, that's always the kicker. You know, I'm, I'm, I'll forgive anything, but you, my children, okay. You cross the line there. How, how, how can you, where do you get the resources from? And that's what Paul says because Paul says at the, that last phrase of verse 32, God in Christ forgave you. Because the eternal father at the cost of the death of his, the eternal son forgave you. You find the strength to forgive others out of the strength of the current of mercy flowing out of the death of Jesus Christ. You don't look in and say, do I really want to or was I not actually really hurt? No, you, you, you turn to the gospel. In fact, brothers and sisters, in light of Christ's death for us, not forgiving others makes no sense. Did you hear that? In light of Christ's death, not forgiving others doesn't make any sense. I want you to imagine this scene. Okay, you ready? Tim, hopefully, uh, let me just name Tim in here. Okay, because Tim's going to come out looking bad. <laughs> Tim stalled on 83 in Ellington. And he's going, uh, going south during this busy hour. And he had forgotten his cell phone at home. Another driver sees Tim's stalled car and pulls into the parking lot of Luann's. And uh, he gets out of his car and he walks over to the stalled car and he says, well, let's get, your, let's get this off the road. I'll push and you, you steer. And so they get the car over to the parking lot. And Tim borrows the cell phone of the other driver and calls up the tow company and, uh, to take it to the service uh, station. And this guy waits for Tim for the truck to arrive. And then the guy says to Tim, hey, l let me give you a ride home. Where do you live? Uh, Man Manchester. And then Tim says, well, where do you live? Oh, here in Ellington. I, I was just about home. Tim says, I can't ask you to, to do that. The guy says, no problem. And then the next day, the guy on his way to work in Summers drives the opposite, first drives the opposite direction to Manchester, picks up Tim, and then drops him off at the service station. Yeah, we got this scene there? We good with that? Well, the next week, Tim's driving his now repaired car in a tight part of Hartford. But is there a tight part of, of Hartford? I've, I've, anyway, and the guy in front of him stops and puts on his blinker. And it turns out he's going to back up and parallel park along the curb. And Tim has to wait five seconds for that to happen. And, and uh, he lifts up his hand and the universal signal, Tim does, of you terrible person. <laughs> and on the way by, he shakes his head in disgust at the parallel parker. You get the point, right? Don't be Tim. 
after being forgiven and befriended in big ways, we're supposed to pass that on. You've been forgiven. And so, what? Forgive. You've been forgiven a lot, so forgive a little. And when we're told to forgive, forgive thoroughly. Yes? I heard this great story once. It's uh, an, uh, an army private uh, who was a Christian and who had this habit of reading his Bible and praying in the barracks. And this fellow soldier of his found what he considered this ostentatious you know, display of religion very off-putting. Um, and he was always ragging on him, you know, you Bible thumper, etc. Well, one afternoon they've been out marching, and it was hot, and they were it was a muddy march, and uh, they they came back to the barracks, and um, he's especially infuriated when he sees the guy reading the Bible again. So what he does, he 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 picks up his muddy boots. And he just throws it at him, and the you know thud, and the mud flies everywhere. Well, the next morning, that angry guy found his boots neatly tucked under his bed, and they were cleaned and they were polished. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. That's what the Spirit is turning us into. It's it's a new way of being human. Okay, verse 1. In this way of kindness and tenderheartedness and forgiveness, Paul says you are imitating God. As children who are loved by their Father would naturally imitate Him. Uh, Paul's just said in verse 24 of 4, he says... In Jesus Christ, we've been recreated after the likeness of God the Father. Brothers, this Father of yours sends rain on the just and the unjust. He provides food and gladness and oil and wine that make the heart sing to everybody. He's kind and he's generous to all. And so Paul says, be like your Father. That's what the Spirit is moving us to do. And so finally, in verse 2, chapter 5, Paul brings us back around to Jesus Christ and love and worship. Here, the point, again, is giving us rationale, the grounds to put off the old ways and to put on the new. Again, the idea is we're not in Adam anymore. Yes? We're, and when I'm talking about Adam, I mean the first man, right? Um, a pastor told me this week um, that this generation, they're so biblically illiterate. When you say Adam from the pulpit, they're thinking Adam Sandler, okay? And so I, I just thought about it when I said we're... So I don't mean Adam Sandler. We're not in the first Adam anymore, right? We are in Jesus Christ. And Jesus, the head over our new humanity... Walked in love. It's a kind of a compact. If you wanted to put a phrase on what Jesus did, it says in verse 2, he walked in love. 
And thus, we in Christ, in keeping with our identity, should continue in Jesus' love. The world, the world needs love, right? What the world needs now, love, sweet love, it's the only thing there's just too little of. What the world needs now is love, sweet love, no, not just for some, but for everyone. That's a good song. That's a good phrase. And what does that love look like? And that's what we've, the answer is what we've been talking about all along. What does love look like? It's not just like niceness, okay, or smile. It is just what we've been talking about, truth-telling and controlling your emotions and working hard so you can share with others and helpful speech and keeping the uglies out of your spirit and kindness and tenderheartedness and forgiveness and commitment to relations even when we've been shrugged off or picked over or been attacked, you're, you're still committed. Isn't that, a, isn't that countercultural? Yes. And there's no limit to this commitment, Paul reminds us. Jesus walked in love all the way up to giving up his life for us. Greater love has no man than this, that he lay down his life for another, John 15. And in reminding us of the costly love of Christ, it's implied that for us, also living this way, loving this way, putting off and putting on these virtues and vices might very well be costly. It's hard to forgive. It's hard to root out bitterness. But let nothing stop you from loving people. And certainly don't let your feelings stop you. Okay, you feel like holding on to bitterness. Okay, you don't feel like working hard. Okay, it'd be easier to lie. Okay, you want to write somebody off. Push through it, brothers and sisters. And the rigor that we bring to bear to love in just the way described is an act of worship to God. I think that's what Paul means here. You get this in verse 2. Christ loved, and it cost him his life, but that costly gift was a fragrant offering to God. Brothers and sisters, Christ died for people like us. People, sorry, who are selfish, who spend most of our lives apathetically, who generally think of church as a, as a, as a boutique to suit our needs. Generally, Christians like us don't ever come around to behaving worthily of Christ's death. And yet the Father knows and treasures what Christ went through and accepts his labor and pains as a great sacrifice of worship. And so with the costly sacrifices of our composure and time and effort, etc., it's an offering to God, though no one else might know about the cost in your spirit. I, I need to step back and say, the things I'm talking about, brothers and sisters, are not like, they're, they're things in your mind. That's where the Holy Spirit wants to zero in on, the way you think. I'm not talking about what you wear, but how you think. 
And so no one knows what you're going through to put off and put on, but the Father does, and that effort is a sacrifice to God. We are worshiping God in this putting off and putting on, this worship which we were made to do. That, that's Worship is what humans do. In other words, all of this is worth it. Okay, we're going to conclude this sermon. We're done. And let's do so by saying something provocative. You ready? This sermon will not help you. I Oh, there it is. Probably won't help you. This sermon probably won't help you. This is what I mean. Who's heard of Soren Kierkegaard? Anybody? Yeah, a couple of us. He's a philosopher, a Dane. He spoke this parable. He says, there is a town where only ducks live. Every Sunday, the ducks waddle out of their houses and waddle down the main street to their church. They waddle into the cathedral and squat in their pews. The duck choir sings, and then the duck pastor comes and reads from the duck Bible. He encourages them. Ducks, God has given you wings. With these wings, you can fly. With these wings, you can rise up and soar like eagles. No walls can confine you. No fences can hold you. You have wings, and you can fly like birds. And all the ducks shout, Amen. And then they waddle home. (laughs) With a passage like this, it's easy for us to be the duck. I mean this very specifically. We we agree. I mean, nothing that I said today do you disagree with, probably. We agree with everything the passage says, but then we leave unchanged because this passage is easy to agree with. Merely affirming these virtues as indeed virtuous and these vices as those that truly should be left, left behind isn't hard. We haven't done anything hard. And look, it's not unique to believers, to Christians to say that truth telling Working hard, sharing, controlling our emotions are things to strive after. Everybody says that. Everybody in the world. Though we are given in this a unique motivation for putting on these habits, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ, and that's huge. And thus, we shouldn't just agree with these virtues and vices, but we should commit to genuine change. Paul doesn't say in verse 17, that started this whole thing, I insist that you think differently than the world about virtue. Yeah? He doesn't say that. He says, but rather, I insist that you put these things into practice to a degree and in a depth that the world doesn't. I remember a few years ago reading a memoir of Renee Fleming. Who's heard of of Renee Fleming? Yes, she's an opera singer. Sorry, Every once in a while, I'll listen to some opera. My genres are many. Um, and uh, she described uh, when she was in university, and she would uh, head into the studio practice building, and she would go down the halls of the studios and hear you know, clarinets and then pianos and other instruments, and then she'd find an empty room, and she'd go in, and she would practice. For like two or three hours. And what what would she practice? She would practice intricacies of breathing. And rendering Italian words properly. And all that work, she was years from being on the stage. 
So, brothers and sisters, my point is saying this is a passage that requires practice. Attention to detail. It's a lot of thought. I mean, for instance, let me just take one of these thoughts about working and giving, right? There's so many, there's so many, I, I didn't cover anything. There's so many thoughts that come out of just that. Okay, what if I don't feel like working? What should I do? I'm lazy. How can I learn to work hard? What kind of work should I do? How do I know if I'm working hard? Just answer that question. How do I know if I'm working hard? How many vacation days should I take? Is vacation a Christian thing? Should I give to my church first or my family first? Church or neighbors? Church or foreign missions? Should I give to someone who isn't working himself? You see, you see, tons of questions and thoughts come out of this. And not even to mention the task of sifting through your mental habits and identifying bitterness. Are you bitter? How do you know if you're bitter? It all takes work. And so I'm, what I'm saying is passages like these are crying out for thought and conversations with your spouse and conversations with fellow Christians away from the gatherings. That's the point of this. Prayer, reading Christian books that are specific to these topics, thought, conversation, prayer, more thought, conversation, prayer, detailed assessments, deliberation. So do not, brothers and sisters, do not, I say, say, well, I understood the flow of thought and I agree with all that, so I guess this sermon helped. This sermon has not helped you. It hasn't even started the work. This is the work. I'm, the Spirit is setting off us out to do the work that the church does away from the gatherings. And so say no to waddling. Amen. It's the first time ever in the history of the world that amen has come after the word waddling. Let's pray. Lord, send your spirit to continue the good work that you started at this sermon time. So that when we're away from each other, we are growing up in the Christ by, by the power of the spirit, putting off vices and putting on these virtues. Make this real, Heavenly Father, as only you can, in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, we are going to close with a song that is not familiar. Um, and it's a good song, though, and it's a great song for this, um, the challenge we just had from Ephesians. Um, who's heard of the, Pur the Puritans? Have we heard of the Puritans, that group? Yeah, they're... Uh, People who would pray a lot, pray long prayers, but um, someone collected some of Puritan prayers into a little book called The Valley of Vision. And this text of this song is from one of those prayers. So this is an old prayer that we're going to sing. So um, let's stand. What we're going to do is we're going to have the musicians play through once and then when they come to the end without any uh, introduction, we're just going to sing ourselves. So let's stand and we'll let the musicians go through.
great God of highest heaven, occupy my lowly heart. Own it all and reign supreme. Conquer every rebel power. Let no vice or sin remain that resist your holy war. You have loved and purchased me. Make me yours forevermore. I was blinded by my sin, had no ears to hear your voice, did not know your love within, had no taste for heaven's joys. Then your spirit gave me life, open up your word to me. Through the gospel of your Son, gave me endless hope and peace. Help me now to live a life that's dependent on your grace. Keep my heart and guard my soul from the evils that I face. You are worthy to be praised with my every thought and deed. Oh, great God of highest heaven, glorify your name through me. Okay, well, what's wrong with this picture? We just sang a Puritan, an old Puritan prayer, um, and it's 1132, uh, which means we've been in this uh, service for about an hour. Now, the Puritan prayers would be like 15 minutes. Their sermons would be like an hour and 15 minutes. And so this is, we've been meeting here way too briefly. This is not the way it should be. I, and I, what's, I want to be the first to just apologize to you for this brief meeting. But uh, please continue in prayer as uh, we leave. Pray for those in our assembly who are grieving, uh, who are facing uh, needs, but especially pray for each one of us to put off and put on. And these are, this is very subtle stuff that we've been talking about, I think. Do you agree? You know, wrath, anger, bitterness, it's all tough to trace out. And we need God to do that great work in us. And that, that's, that's what we can do for each other um, this week is uh, we can put off and put on um, through God's Spirit. And so let's do that. Um, I'm going to conclude with this uh, great benediction. The end of Hebrews says, Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will. Working in us. You hear that? Working in us. That's what we need. Working in us. That which is pleasing in his sight 
through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. There is um, food, uh, coffee, and conversations over there. I think there's a lot of food over there. Tanya is going to go over there now. Probably should get there before the kids because uh, as we have said repeatedly, uh, kids under a certain age, I forgot what that age is, need to be attended by their parents. Um, and then, so Tanya's going to be the German enforcer of that. Okay. Tanya, you want to go ahead and go first? Okay. You are dismissed. Thank <laughs> you.